God is just so good. He's so good. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 12. And I'm just, the more I just told somebody this, the more I'm studying the Lord and the scriptures, the more I'm learning about Jesus, I'm finding him to be better than I even could imagine him to be. That God is there, he's present, and that uh, nothing can separate us from his love. And I, I just, I'm just loving what God is showing me in just this season of my life, and I'm glad to share it with you guys and just watching what God is doing. Um, Matthew chapter 12. Now, um, some time ago I was cleaning up my house. My wife's probably going to say, when was that? Um, but that's okay. Uh, I was cleaning up the house, you know, the elm kind of said, hey, you know, I need you to help me at least straighten up the living room a little bit. And uh, so my job is the dishes and minor straightening up. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I told somebody one day, I said, yeah, I run the house. I run the vacuum. I run the dishwasher. I run. And uh, as I was cleaning up, you know, guys, we have this lazy way of cleaning. You know what I'm talking about? Y'all know what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, I had this game to where the couch cushions that are on the floor from our three-year-old that just... Uh, can tear the house to shreds. I got this little game to where I would get my foot under the pillow and try to kick it up onto the couch in the right place. And so kind of made a little game of it. Well, there was a blanket on the floor. And so I'd gotten to this blanket and I went to the blanket and nestled my foot under there. And I kicked the blanket up trying to place it just right. And underneath that blanket, I didn't realize this was one of my daughter's baby dolls. And so if there ever was a moment where I wondered if I was pro-life or not, <laughs> in that moment it was decided. And I started repenting because I had kicked this blanket and a toy baby was under it. And the Lord used that moment. I know that sounds kind of silly, but the Lord used that moment. And he said, when you looked, you saw a mess. But see, I know what's under the mess. And there was a miracle underneath that mess. So, I'm learning that God doesn't see the way I see. And then I'm praying for the Lord to give me His eyes where I can see the way He sees. And where I can interpret things the way He interprets things. And what I'm finding about God is, is that He's not ashamed of our mess or running from our mess, he dives right smack dab into the middle of our mess and stays present with us until we realize he's there and we hand it over to him. And I've begun to look, and even in Genesis 1 and 1, 1, 1 and 1, 2, this is God's M.O. Because in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. But verse 2 reveals something strange. It says that the earth was without form and void. So we get that grand opening statement that God has created everything. But then we get this next statement of how God did it. That the Spirit of God hovers over the waters, over the earth that's without form, that is empty, that's void. He's basically hovering over the chaos, 
looking to insert himself and to begin to make sense of the chaos and begin to structure things where life can then exist. That the Father's heart from throughout all eternity has always been to hover over messes and look for a place to put himself where he might make sense and order out of that which is chaotic. So when Jesus comes to on the scene, the first thing that anything needs in order for life to form is light. So the first thing God says is let there be light so that the organisms can begin to, leave, begin to live. And so when Jesus steps on the scene, his mission is just the same, is that he's the light of the world. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, he's walking up just like God the Father did, and he's hovering over chaotic situations and inserting himself into it and saying, let there be light. Let something that was dead begin to start to live and begin to regenerate into something that's going to give me glory and do what I've created it to do. In our text this morning, we're going to examine the end of what scholars call conflict stories or a pronouncement stories. In Mark chapter 2 all the way to chapter 3 verse 6, there's the five stories that are stacked together strategically by the author of Mark. We're going to be looking at the account in Matthew, but these are neatly compiled in the book of Mark. And Jesus is coming onto the scene in these conflict stories, and he's confronting the societal norms of the day and the controls that have been put into place by men and religion. So every one of these stories crescendos with a conflict with authority. Something else I'm beginning to find out about Jesus is that as he's going through the Bible, he's doing about three things. He's confronting wrong thoughts about the Father. He's healing, casting out demons, and setting things right. And he is revealing himself as the king that is going to turn this world upside down and begin to institute the kingdom of God. That Jesus is putting these three realities forward. In every situation, Jesus Christ is showing up, and sometimes he's doing all three of them at the same time. So these conflict stories are showing us that Jesus is confronting wrong ideas about God and how the eternal kingdom of God actually operates. So the climax of each account is a radical pronouncement by Jesus. It challenges the traditions of men and begins to set them aside where they might see God as He he actually is. See, some of us have bought the lies of tradition. Now, not all tradition is bad, right? There's some good heritage and some legacies that we can pull from tradition. But how many of you know that sometimes tradition can be something that is extra biblical? (laughs) That it's not anything in the Bible. It's just what Grandpa Joe told you and you thought it was gospel truth and you ran with it for the rest of your life. And that sets in in such a way that it blinds us to the reality of who God really is. So Jesus has got to come in and begin to lift off these layers of things, of this lens of how we viewed God and viewed the earth and viewed other people. And he has to come in and he's so patient and kind in doing it. But he begins to peel back layers. And how many of you have ever had Jesus peel back a layer of false belief that you've had? And you said, wait a second, that means so and so was wrong. God, they can't be wrong. I got saved under their ministry. 
And so in that moment, we have the choice to choose what is biblical and what is right. Or we put that blinder, that lens back over our eyes and we don't see God as he is. And it affects our life. And we carry these things for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years and we look around. We haven't done anything for God. We've not been moved into any new territories because we bought some lie of this stale thing that isn't even reality. It isn't even truth. So as Christ begins to reveal himself to us, it's a brave thing to say, God, I'm wrong. And as good as so-and-so was, they were wrong too. So what we find sometimes is that when we say, well, I've always been taught, what we're really saying is I've allowed another person to dictate my views and who I think God should be. Sometimes, it's not always bad to get views from people. I'm not saying that. But sometimes it restricts our view of who Jesus really is. So from Mark 2 to 3, verse 6, these stories are compiled. The first one is the healing of the paralytic. This is where the guy gets dropped through the roof. You remember that story? They can't get the guy in, so they just tear the roof off that sucker and just drop him directly in so people got an issue with it right and they say well how in the world can you forgive sins and jesus says well just to really stick it to you and show you that i can actually forgive sins i'm going to heal this guy and he's going to take up his mat and he's going to walk home they were so stuck on an outward reality they couldn't understand the inward work that jesus was wanting to do so jesus gives them the outward work and the inward work at the same time And they begin to be upset about this. The second one is the call of Matthew. Where here's this tax collector who has, you talk about collusion. He's with the Roman government and taxing his own people. And Jesus calls him out and says, come with me. And they say, wait a second. This Jesus guy eats with sinners. Aren't you glad he ate with sinners? (laughs) Praise God. We can have a meal with him. Amen. The third thing that Jesus confronts is the teaching of fasting in the right way. And the last two involve Jesus and his followers that we're going to cover today. Jesus and his followers are coming through and plucking grain from a field. And it involves a miraculous work that Jesus does. On the Sabbath. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to dive right in here. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful. To do on the Sabbath. So here it's not clear that any scriptures had been broken by Jesus. But what had begun to develop was something called the oral law. When the Jewish people had got sitting into Babylonian captivity, they began to get serious about 
keeping their traditions as they were exiled in another place so that when they came back home, they would have their traditions in place. So they developed an oral commentary on the law of Moses. So the law of Moses had 613 commandments. Some of them moral, like the Ten Commandments. Some of them civil on how to orchestrate government. Some of them ceremonial in the sacrifices in the temple and, and so forth. So these people had taken the oral law, these 613 commandments. I mean, you know, that's enough. <laughs> Praise God. And they begin to do a commentary on these things, and as they begin to teach the oral law, this commentary rose up and up and up in prominence until they were teaching that the written law couldn't be present without the oral law side by side. So by the time the Pharisees are here and Jesus is uh, having to confront these deadheads, they had turned the 613 commandments into over 6,000 commandments that were just as powerful as the law of Moses. This was called the Mishnah and the Talmud. And so of these commandments that they had determined, they, they really looked at the Sabbath and said, okay, here's, the, here's what you can't do on the Sabbath. And two of the 39 that they had come up with had forbidden what Jesus was doing on this day. See, in Jesus' day, and still considered by the Orthodox Jews, this oral commentary was deemed equal with the law that, Jesus, or that Moses had received on Mount Sinai. So what had happened was, is that as this idea began to work itself out, and it started good, because it's, all bad things at one time, generally in the church, started good, Right? People had a zeal for keeping the traditions and everything else, but over time, it had evolved into this other thing. So now, the religious leaders of the day, they had sought as their job to be a gatekeeper or a protector of the holiness of God. So in other words, the Pharisees saw their job as, we get to tell people who's in and who's out. So their whole walk with God was basically deciding who God was going to love and who He wasn't. So when Jesus comes on the scene, He has to confront that evil demon so that He can undo those things to show that Jesus is including everyone into this new work that God is doing. That the Gentiles would be in, that the pagans would be in, that the tax collectors could have a chance to get in, that the drug addicts could get in, that the homosexual could get in, and that anybody that was on the outside was merely on the outside, not because God didn't love them, but because they had to get a revelation of God's love, repent of their sin, and then come and find a Jesus that loves them. Jesus had to go to the toughest place he could go. You know, there's other places that were doing human sacrifice. There was other places of cannibalism at this time. But the worst demon that Jesus ever confronted was the demon of religion. Amen. Amen. Jesus goes to the most religious site and the most religious time in human history and has to overcome that monster before he deals with the cannibal. 
should put evil in perspective for us. But Jesus was actually obeying the law. He was in the confines of the law. Because the law declared that you left the corners of the field for the poor, the sojourner, the person traveling through that needed something to eat. So as Jesus is going through, he's taking the path of the poor. People are mad at Jesus because he's taking the path of the poor. It makes you wonder. It looks like Jesus can't catch a break. He said, I don't have a place to lay my head. Foxes have a hole. I don't even have a hole to stick myself into. And here I am taking the path of the poor for all humanity. And I'm getting confronted on it as if I'm breaking the law. I'm sorry, but if I've got Jesus walking with me in the flesh... I'd like to think I would come up with better questions than why are you plucking grain on the Sabbath? You have the key to the universe, the logos, the wisdom that has been ingrained within the universe that can answer everything. And the best question you have is why are you plucking grain? I get passionate about this, y'all. The best thing we can ask him is, why didn't you wash your hands before you ate? And then think about the trivial stuff you and I have asked Jesus when a greater matter was at hand. And I'm sorry, but have you ever plucked a a grain of raw wheat? It's not that glorious. It's not like a blackberry or a peach, right? It's not like, oh, look at this juice rolling down my cheeks. And man, I'm really enjoying this moment. It's like I'm barely alive and I need to pluck a raw piece of wheat out of this field where I can get something to eat because I've chosen to follow God. But still, that is too much for Jesus. The Pharisee would say, hold on, you can't do that. You can't even do that, Jesus. Jesus put himself in the path of the poor and he's getting harassed for it. See, these are the barriers that can be placed over our eyes when we begin to say, God will go this far and no further. But when we begin to create a God that's safe and that's predictable, when we put on this lens and we can't properly see who God is anymore. We begin to condemn those who want to go a little bit further because it reflects on our inability to go further because we've chosen not to go. But this is what Jesus had to deal with. Now what's what Jesus does to them? He, he just gets them in all kinds of ways here. This is cool. Verse 3. He said to them, Have you not read what King David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? Verse 4, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So Jesus is saying, I'm out here in a field eating grain that ain't even processed. And you're not even dealing with David, who went into the temple when he was hungry and actually ate the holy bread that he wasn't even supposed to eat. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, you guys would even kick King David out if he was here. You're claiming to look, looking for me. You're claiming to say, I'm looking for the second David, the greater David that's to come, the Messiah. You're claiming to look for him, but you would even kick the first one out. That you wouldn't even let King David in. You know the guy that killed Goliath and united the kingdom and had the glory days? Yeah, you would keep him out. That's what Jesus is saying. This is showing them that even King David would have been unworthy of their idea of God. That they saw it as this exclusive club that only the perfect could inherit. And that they didn't know that they were the ones excluded from the new kingdom that God was going to establish. That they were on the outside looking in. And the sinner with a humble heart was on the inside looking out. Jesus is changing everything. So as David's eating the showbread in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, he was not only breaking oral law, but he's breaking the scripture too. See, Jesus is undoing their ideas about King David. He's showing them that a greater than King David is there. He's showing them that a greater than King David was there. They were looking for a second David. But they failed to see the suffering servant that would walk among the poor. And there's times where we see Jesus and we think, a king ought to show up. And instead, a suffering servant shows up, ready to wash feet. Ready to reach people and meet them right where they're at. And that's all the more glorious. Verse 5, or have you not read in the law? I love this. Or have you not read in the law on how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So you see what Jesus says here? Or have you not read? It'd be like going into a room of Bible scholars that are have all head knowledge but don't have the Holy Ghost. And the old country preacher comes in with the Holy Ghost and says, Have you guys not read the Bible? That the old 30-year-old construction worker is taking these religious leaders to school here. Have you not read the Bible? I thought you guys read the Bible. I thought you all memorized the Bible. So Jesus comes in and he really... Jesus isn't as boring as you think he is, okay? I'm just telling you. He's not as boring as you think he is. So Jesus is saying, have you not read the Bible? He's learned Jews. Jesus is bringing the point that the priests have to provide sacrifices in the temple every single day, two times a day. He's like, why aren't you going to the priests? If I'm not who I say I am and I'm just some drifter on the fringes, why are you messing with me in the part of the field that is provided for the poor and yet you're not confronting the priests who are actually doing a work that is counter to the law of Moses? See, but church folk don't like to mess with other church folk. They'd rather go out and blame the world for the problems. That's why the judgment begins with the house of God. Because when God gets the church in order, we'll get this world in order. When God begins to change our view, He'll begin to change things all over the city for God. Verse 6, Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. 
Jesus is establishing an ethic here. He's saying that I am the only place where you can meet with God. And that when Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the dead and He sends His Holy Spirit, that at that point in human history, theology goes to Christology, then goes to pneumatology, which is the study of the Spirit, and then God is now as close as the mention of His name. That Jesus says, if you want to get to the Father, you're not going to find Him in some drafty corridors, in some sacerdotal system of do this and do that. You just got to say, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. Jesus. And He'll be there with you. How many of you ever been in the car and that praise song comes on that's been pushing your buttons? And you just start a little praise going on in the car. And the presence of God fills that car up. Say, thank God I needed that. I needed that touch today, God. It's awesome. Verse 7, and if you have known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Verse 8, for the Son of Man, get this, oh man, this is where it gets really, Jesus is piling it on here, high and deep. Verse 8, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) Said, you guys think you're experts of the Sabbath? I instituted the Sabbath. It'd be like me going to Michael Jordan and saying, hey bro, let me show you how to do that turnaround jump shot. People say, are you dumb? It's Michael Jordan. And you're going to... No, when it's, that's the case, you just sit back and watch. You say, show me how to turn my shoulders. and Anyway. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, when he said this, he was really, really saying something special. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14... Check this out. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that should not be destroyed so when he says the son of man is the lord of the sabbath he's saying i'm that guy in daniel 7 that daniel wrote about and the real king has come onto the scene and you've dared to confront the real king and to tell him how things ought to be and how it ought to go jesus is declaring that this is coming to pass that the king has come Verse 9, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. I like how he said that, their synagogue. Well, spelled wrong up there, but T-H-E-R, their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? I mean, we just had the event in the field eating sorry grain that's standing. 
And now he tries to go to church and even enter into their system. More problems for Jesus. See, this again would have been against their law. Because they saw this as a work that Jesus was doing. That if a man was not in danger of dying, you couldn't heal them on the Sabbath. See, Jesus is changing the definition and practice of the fourth commandment here. Verse 11, he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? That's biblical. That's, that's Bible. Verse 12, Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So see, he begins to reveal their heart of what they actually value. That they're claiming to love God, but yet they don't have love for their brother because anything that touches him is unlawful. God's revealing their heart by putting their own actions and deeds against them. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Verse 13. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. See, Mark 3 tells us a strange mixture of feelings that were in Jesus' heart. It says he was angry, but grieved. That he was angry at sin, but he was grieved for the sinner. And this should be the complexity of emotions in our heart when we're dealing with the lost. Yes, we should be angry at sin, but my goodness, we ought to be grieved for the sinner. My former pastor always told me, if you're going to preach hell, you better do it with tears in your eyes. You better not be excited about people going there. And some churches are excited about people going to hell. In the name of holiness or whatever. I'm trying. (laughs) So Jesus doesn't do a work to heal the man. Jesus even still staying above their standards, right? Because they're like, you can't do a work to heal that man. Jesus doesn't do a work. He speaks it. So this whole story is about Jesus staying within the confines of their rules and him doing it despite their rules and their legalities. So Jesus is really sticking it to them here because they're saying, here, you can't do this, 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 and this. And he stays within their rules and still does this, 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 and this. That this is how glorious Jesus is. Jesus doesn't break their law. He speaks the word. And when the word was spoken, a fresh life had streamed into a place that was once dead. So if you have a dead place in your life, I dare you to ask the word that was God, is God, will always be God to say, touch my life. Touch my life. Touch my life. Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. I'm sorry, but after those like lessons, I think I would eventually said to say, okay, you win. Instead, an anger entered their heart that said, 
surely there's an angle that we can come at this guy and stop him from doing the work that he's trying to do on the earth. You notice this man had an issue. And that issue even kept him from being in the temple. So in other words, according to their standards, this guy was considered unclean and he couldn't enter the temple. But Jesus bypasses the temple and says, why don't you just meet with me? Why don't we bypass this whole process of stuff and we just meet each other right here and right now and you be healed? Jesus doesn't say to this man, get out of here, you're unclean. But if you notice, the religious ones are the ones trying to keep Jesus out. Who's the one person that can actually heal this man? I want, to know, I want you guys to know that we're not guardians of God's holiness. You're not a cherub with a flaming sword that keeps people away from the tree of life. I hate to tell you that. You're not that person. God will defend his own holiness. You don't have to ask, you don't have to defend a lion. A lion can defend themselves. We are to be a people that stand by the cross and say, come on, there's room. Come on, there's room. There's room for you here. I'm here. There's endless room here. That Jesus has dropped every mountain and raised up every valley. And he's put all of us on equal ground and says, if anyone will come to me, that I'll give them rest. And that I'll meet them in that place. So I want to tell you, you don't have to carry your issues around all covered up. And keep the faiths so that everybody thinks you're holy. Because the only thing that ever added a drop to your holiness was the blood of Christ being applied to your life. So you can just say, God, I'm going to stretch forth this thing that's withered. And all the shame that comes with it, and I'm just going to say, here I am. And God hears that prayer. And He heals that person. We're not gatekeepers. We're, com- we're welcoming committees. <laughs> we're welcoming committees. And you know what these empty chairs tell me? There's seats at the table. That if we don't have to call Jesus and say, Hey, RSVP. You get those deals from the wedding deal and you're in that position. Oh, do I tell them to go? Do I, oh, well, just think about it. Then you wait till last second. Hey, we're coming. <laughs> Jesus' wedding feast, it's an endless table. So these empty seats, they scream to me. They scream to me, not because I need my ego stroked with a full church, but they speak to me because there's seats at the table. There's seats at the table. There's seats at the table. 
that there's a feast, there's a party coming that we all get to be a part of. And there's others that need to be in that party. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. God, we just thank you.